Hi, this is Dr. Janet Slots. As the number of cancer survivors rise, there is an increased need for natural and integrative practitioners to support the late and long-term side effects of patients' experience as a result of their treatment. Join me for Bioceuticals Clinical Mastery, Rebuilding Patients After Cancer Treatment on August 10th, where I'll lead you through some common treatment strategies I use in my own clinical practice. Go to bioceuticals.com.au to reserve your place today. Welcome to FX Medicine, bringing you the latest in evidence-based, integrative, functional and complementary medicine. I'm Dr. Michelle Woolhouse. FX Medicine acknowledges the traditional custodians of country throughout Australia where we live and work and their connections to land, sea and community. We pay our respects to the elders past and present and extend this respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people today. One of the most emotionally complex and at times devastating diagnoses is that of the diagnosis of cancer. Cancer is a complex disease that shares the same etiology of abnormal cell growth. Cancer can arise in almost every cell type and in fact refers to about a hundred different diseases. A recent article published in Current Oncology in 2019 goes into great detail regarding the deeper meanings of integrative naturopathic principles when it comes to oncology. It encourages practitioners to focus on more than just the disease and to explore with patients other factors such as overall physical and emotional health and issues such as intimacy, spirituality and meaning. Joining us today is Miss Carla Wren. She's a naturopath and founder of the Peninsula Herbal Dispensary in Mornington. She's a regular lecturer and educator and is passionate about supporting people through their oncology journey. She loves sharing the research findings and doing the best for her patients and their families. Welcome to FX Medicine, Carla. Thanks for being with us today. Thanks for having me and thanks for the introduction. So I know you see a lot of women with, say, for example, breast cancer, a really common uh, cancer in modern times, and women are particularly focused on holistic well-being. So Carla, let's just start off by what sort of things are women coming to see you for today? Yes, they usually come in in uh, one of three stages. They'll come in during the shock and I would say trauma of the initial diagnosis, looking to really adopt some of those wellbeing strategies that they've used throughout their life, but now uh, feel like they need to be updated um, given their current diagnosis. Then there'll be the patients that will come during the early stages of their treatment because they're starting to experience some side effects. So they might be having hot flushes or they might be having trouble with insomnia or maybe they have some kind of other comorbidity that's being flared up by the treatment that they're undergoing for their oncology um, practitioner uh, through standard oncology. And then the final uh, group of patients I see are ones after their treatment where they're really looking to pick themselves back up and get back to where they were before their diagnosis. I mean, it's a, it's a beautiful way that you kind of shape that and there's obviously so much that people can do to support that holistic approach to care. So having worked alongside you with lots of these patients, I can certainly attest to the benefits of having someone like you on the team. Can you share with us kind of your basic general oncology support strategy? And and also, I guess, how do you kind of see your scope within that holistic oncological team, like me being a GP and we've got sometimes an oncologist, a radiation oncologist, an um, exercise physiologist, etc. 
Yes, I think that's a really good point. Everyone has such a big part to play um, and I certainly see myself as um, a smaller cog in the wheel. And my thoughts are about really how I can support the patient's whole health. So certainly in Australia and in most other Western countries, patients are getting fantastic care through those oncologists, GP, radiation oncologists and um, a lot of the other support team around it. But what is often forgotten or can be improved is that the patient just feels like their overall health isn't being looked at um, or supported in the way that they might need. So like I mentioned, comorbidities. Um, So the four areas that I really think of is how can I support my patient to have the best overall health? How can I help them with side effects? Uh, How can we adopt some modifiable lifestyle factors like diet, sleep, rest, relaxation that's all published in the research to be shown to improve cancer outcomes? Um, And and how can we look after them and their carer to get the best not only um, from their oncology treatment with their standard practitioners, but also with their whole health and give them a little bit of control back too so they feel like they're a part of the cog in this big uh, wheel of treatment uh, as opposed to being an innocent bystander that's just having everything happen to them. Yeah, and I think that's I think you know when I when I speak to my patients about looking at the whole of their health they they start to feel a lot more empowered. Can you tell us a little bit about, you know, like just break some of those things down in terms of what is your overall aspect of diet nutrition or insomnia or lifestyle? Like where do you start? Do you have a Do you have kind of like a a way or an approach that you start with? Yeah, I think, you know, we have to remember that, um, yes, cancer is devastating. And I love that you pointed out that, you know, there is around 100 different types of um, cancer conditions and that there's really a diverse range of experiences people have have within that. So we consider that in the initial consultation and subsequent consultations, but we also consider those comorbidities or things um, that might be causing um, issues. When we come down to the modifiable lifestyle factors like diet, and sleep, I do a really thorough assessment just to see where they're at. We might use some questionnaires to understand the quality of the sleep and how restorative their sleep is. And then we lean into what we've always done as naturopaths or integrative practitioners and support them using some complementary medicines or some education around sleep hygiene um, or the appropriate dietary principles for them. And there's so much evidence on that to um, how we can incorporate that safely into cancer care. So, um, you know, if someone's experiencing a breast cancer that's um, hormonally dependent. Uh, We might consider a group of herbs for uh, sleep, but we need to be really mindful that those uh, herbs uh, don't have any estrogenic action. So the subtle differences are just really around uh, adopting that research and also ensuring the patient's safety given their um, current diagnosis. Yeah, great. So what what are the things that you might look out for, for example, like using you know, the example that you gave, just using herbs for sleep and one of the things that, you know, you might want to look out for, is there something that you see commonly in in patients? Because I know also like so many people are self-prescribing. I mean, mm. I was at Chemist Warehouse this week and that's an overwhelming um, <laughs> experience from a, um, from a nutritional supplement, um, you know, rows and rows and rows Definitely. of nutritional supplements. And so lots of people are self-prescribing, you know, because, you know, some people that have had a diagnosis really are desperate, you know, to support themselves. And 
what what are some of your concerns or what are, what are some of the common things that you have seen that you can pick out? Yes. So uh, kind of in two areas, if we go back to that example I gave about the estrogen-dependent breast cancer and insomnia, you know, if you walk into many different retailers to purchase something for sleep, the majority of those just happen to have estrogenic herbs in. So we have to be very cautious because our patient, we can't expect them to know this. You know, you and I um, and many of the audience have studied for years to kind of learn these things. And it just so happens that there are herbs in there that we have to avoid. So I do have reservations about self-prescription because of the such easy risk of interactions. Just as a general across the board self-prescribing risk, I'd have to say the number one concern I have is the use of curcumin. Uh, Don't get me wrong. I absolutely love it. And it has a huge amount of research uh, in complementary medicine. But used alongside standard oncology, it can cause some pretty significant interactions. And so that's probably the one that I see most common. Um, Many people will have it on a dietary level and that's so not so much of a concern but supplements that are getting higher and higher in dose and um, bioavailability can be a problem if taken at the same time as some chemotherapies. Mm. So in terms of safety concerns what what do you do do you avoid it altogether or is there a timing aspect that needs to be considered? Yeah there's some really great research on this um, and it comes down to some calculations to do with the half-life of the medications um, and the half-life of the pharmaceuticals um, or supplements that the patient's taking. There's a really great guide uh, called the golden rule that helps us calculate this. But when in doubt, we have to avoid it because there are so many options. I talked to the patients um, during the initial consultation about the toolbox that they have available to them from complementary Mm. medicine perspective. And generally, if it's going to have any risk of interaction, um, barring a very few exceptions where I might interact um, and engage the help of the oncology or the pharmacy team within the hospital setting, um, we would just avoid those. There's always other times to use them and there's always something else we can use. So I I strongly recommend people um, getting someone to access and check that safety. Um, The unfortunate thing is the databases that provide all of this information aren't free to access to everyone. So I feel like there's a a bit of a challenge there to be able to truly find out all the interaction potentials. Mm -hmm. Um, But nonetheless, I guess the the warning is sometimes naturals aren't safe, especially when you're trying to um, combine them with something that's so active uh, as an and so important as their standard oncology treatment. I mean, I always found it really helpful to team up with a community pharmacist, yes. particularly one that's got a um, an interest in complementary medicine because I found them so, uh, so helpful, you know, at those tricky times as well. And you talk about developing a team. Like I know, you know, you, you're a big fan of the McGrath Foundation, um, breast care nurses and uh, breast support masseurs and exercise physiologists. Tell us about these supports and what have you found you know, of benefit working uh, within a more, uh, I guess, specific team for, for some of your breast cancer patients? Yeah, look, I think, you know, the patient has um, so many different elements to the case. And I, I think as clinicians, we certainly can't tackle all of those. Um, I think the exercise is a really great, exercise physiologist is a really great example. Again, there's so much research into oncology and the benefits of movement and exercise. Uh, but in the scope of the consultation time period that I have and, and with my um, qualifications, advising patients on a detailed exercise prescription is certainly not something I can do. And I know that I'm not going to get the best for my patient if I 
I do that? So engaging someone like an exercise physiologist or you mentioned the McGrath Foundation and all of their services, um, we have a local support group and some really great nurses who are able to provide a different element to what I can provide. And I think the mm. last two years have certainly taught me that patients need this. You know, the systems are ten- tending to be overwhelmed. Patients might not be feeling heard as much as they perhaps used to. And so giving them avenues to get support from other people um, just gives them more of a cushioning and, and a feeling of being able to access care from a variety of different clinicians and people who can just support them in different ways. Yeah, I think COVID-19 and all those lockdowns have actually revealed just how much we need support. Mm. I know there's a lot of evidence on social support and, and having support groups or um, that ability to kind of I guess, offload a lot of of the trauma or sharing a common human journey is so powerful for healing as well. One piece Mm. of very interesting research that I did see lately is just the amount of um, information that's suggesting, surprisingly, I was quite surprised, but it'd be interesting to hear what you think, is that um, the research shows that even if patients are to access those services in telehealth or in online support groups, they still get the same benefit as if they were to access, you know, a, a practitioner in a clinical setting or a support group in a clinical setting. I thought that was quite interesting given the restrictions that some people will be facing um, both in Australia and around the world. So, you know, it's, it's good to know that we can still give that level of care. I just sometimes think more, more people um, helping is a, a better situation at the moment. Yeah. I mean, we've been forced into the, the telehealth role and the online support groups have certainly been fantastic for some people who haven't been able to get there, reduces travel time, you know, increases convenience. And so there's definitely lots of benefits. Mm-hmm. I've heard you speak about what the evidence has coined is called the, the hallmarks of cancer. What, what, what do they mean by that? And what do you, how do you use that to enrich your oncology support? program? Yes, so the hallmarks of cancer are really based around some published articles and and some extensive research by some of the world's best cancer researchers and clinicians looking at how we can understand cancer. And it's evolved over the last, I'd say, 15, um, maybe even longer years to um, really encompass the kind of drivers that might be considered in cancer. Now, this was put together to really help standard oncology choose the type of prescriptions um, and treatment that might be most appropriate for, for patients. But we can also look at that from a driver perspective and how our complementary medicines interact and play a part in these drivers. And so the hallmarks or drivers are something we can use as a guide. You could also call them hallmarks of wellbeing when it comes to complementary medicine. We can ensure that we make Mm. and and meet all the different targets that we know are going to drive or increase the risk or severity of this uh, cancer affecting the patient's quality of life and and, and length of life. Mm. Yeah, brilliant. So can we break these down a little bit? Because I know that there's a really beautiful way of kind of shaping them into these five different kind of areas. So let's start. We've got the chemo preventatives aspects of of looking at the role of support in oncology. So let's break them down because we've got we've got a few. So what do you mean by chemo preventative, and how do you approach yeah. that part of? Yeah, so chemo preventatives um, are very very interesting, and it's an area that lots of people will come uh, in natural medicine or will be on Doctor Google at home trying to look at those anti cancer therapies, and that's really something that we can't use as a term. Chemo preventatives is mm. kind of the most um, comparable term, and really what it's talking about, if we break it down, which is quite different to perhaps what the consumer might be 
looking for um, is that these things can help with some of those hallmarks of cancer. It can help um, in the research, uh, published research, to change some of the ways that cancer behaves in the body. Um, so chemo preventatives are looking at that whole system interaction and how we can use some of the complementary medicines appropriately, and they're not always appropriate, alongside um, or um, at different times of the treatment uh, to really improve some of those key drivers in oncology. Mm. So can you give us an example? Yeah, so things like turmeric, which I mentioned before, tends to being one of the most popular prescriptions, but we have to be quite cautious of that. Things like green tea, Japanese knotweed, uh, there's a huge amount. And um, I guess it's understanding the right time to pull those things out of our toolbox. And I think it, it mm. lends itself to bring up that comment of more is not always better. So with my prescriptions, mm. I'm really trying to um, drill down what nutrients or herbs or lifestyle advice or dietary advice can we use that is the, is the least possible to get these outcomes so what has lots of different actions and I think um, the medicinal mushrooms is one that I like they're a chemo preventative and I know we'll talk about them and how they help the immune system shortly but um, they also have that chemo preventative action so we can use them yeah. to get multiple actions and that's what I try and do so our patients don't end up on a whole plethora of things because that's just another recipe for um, some safety concerns yeah I, I'm a big fan of medicinal mushrooms myself. Whenever I look into mushrooms, I just, they blow my mind. So the next thing in this shaping of the hallmark of, of cancer, we talk about anti-inflammatories. I mean, you know, inflammation is, is a massive driver. You know, we can see it in a, a pro-inflammatory, anti-inflammatory form. We know that the body loves to have a really good balance of inflammation as well. But anti-inflammatories, or you know, we, we live in a very pro-inflammatory world. It seems like everything, you know, that we do seems to inflame the body. So, you know, anti-inflammatory pathways are working to de-inflame the body is a part of this hallmark of cancer. Can you talk to us a little bit more about what you mean by that? Yes, definitely. So that tumour-promoting inflammation is the um, is the key within the hallmarks of cancer. And it's really talking about that microenvironment on a cellular level that the tumour grows in. And the fact that inflammation um, on a cellular level, but also on a systemic level, is going to be detrimental to the progression of the cancer. I also find that inflammation, as we know, is so important in so many areas. So I think a lot of the comorbidities that patients are experiencing are also um, mm. directly related to inflammation even if we go to something like depression and, and mental health, we can see that signs of neuroinflammation. So getting the inflammation under control in oncology is very similar to getting the inflammation under control in just about every complex or chronic um, modern disease that has that inflammatory connection. So we think about things like omega-3s. Again, we think about curcumin, PEA, resveratrol, and just all the dietary and lifestyle changes we can make. You know, someone's staying up late and eating the wrong food and having too much coffee and doing all the things we know that cause inflammation and we need to teach them how to address those yeah. things too. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that that's that holistic sort of approach and, and exercise is very anti-inflammatory as well. So, but again, not too much and not too little. So, you know, it's all that sense of moderation, which is really, really inspiring. So let's get on to immunomodulators. As we know, we're going to talk about medical mushrooms or um, medicinal mushrooms. So um, immune modulation is really important because the immune system is where 
inflammation occurs. It's where the white blood cells, you know, uh, do their jobs, where we protect ourselves against viruses and parasites and bacteria. So uh, t- let's talk about immune modulations in that sort of sense of the hallmark of cancer. Yeah, so we're really trying to ensure that the immune system does what it needs to do and, and is destructive in the appropriate way when these cells are incorrectly formed. And so, um, you know, there's extensive research around the immunomodulators. So from things like melatonin and vitamin C and astragalus right down to the medicinal mushrooms, we can see lots of evidence of the way that this can help in, in many ways in oncology, but particularly around supporting the immune system. And, you know, the research on uh, compounds like PSK, which is a real Japanese-based formula, just really exciting. We can adopt that and use mushrooms like turkey tail and shiitake, which you mentioned, and a whole group of other ones to really yeah. um, encourage the immune system to go back to what it needs to do. And um, these are one of the ones that we also have to be careful because a lot of the new um, immunomodulator or immunotherapies that are being used, we have to be cautious with um, using the mushrooms and, and things like vitamin C and melatonin. But again, in the right time, provide some really wonderful benefits and great to bring into your diet. You're never going to cause yourself harm by eating mushrooms, even if you're on a treatment. So, um, you know, having those shiitakes or other ratio, other mushrooms that you enjoy, even just button mushrooms have been shown to improve the immune system. Mm-hmm. So, you know, get eating the mushrooms. Yeah, I'm a big fan of mushrooms. And then we talk about hormonal modulators. So hormones are not involved in every single cancer, but certainly some of the most um, prevalent cancers like breast cancer, prostate cancer, et cetera, um, have got a hormonal modulation aspect in their their treatment programs. So tell us a little bit about how that works with the hallmarks of cancer. Yeah, so like you mentioned, it's not something we assess for everyone, but in someone that's coming with a potentially hormonally dependent or stimulated cancer, we do get some assessment done. So I usually lean into some functional pathology and organise to get some good hormonal assessment done to really understand the pathways and how that person is metabolising their hormones. Again, we look at things like diet and lifestyle. Um, I'm sure your listeners are really uh, familiar with things like plastics and the effect that they might have on hormones. So we really try and Mm. clean up ways that hormones could be causing some issues within the body and in the cancer itself. And then we use things like calcium to glucurate, which has some really strong and amazing evidence right down to rosemary, even in the herb form as a fresh tea. We find that rosemary has an action on stimulating pathways that help for detoxification of hormones. Mm. Brilliant. And so the last one, you know, is is blood sugar regulation. So blood sugar regulation seems to be such a strong driver towards inflammation and insulin resistance and and just um, almost kind of a messing up cellular messaging. So tell us about blood sugar regulation as a um, as part of this oncology support program. Yeah, so blood sugar regulation, if we look at the general Western diet and the type of foods that many people might be consuming and very often they don't understand blood sugar regulation, they might have a genetic tendency to have an issue um, with insulin resistance or even family history of type 2 diabetes and all of these things, complications to the drivers of cancer and certainly activate some of those hallmarks we've been talking about. And as complementary medicine or functional medicine practitioners, we're really in a great place to be able to educate our patients about this with some subtle dietary changes, using basic bloods to assess what their blood sugar levels might be looking like and then using appropriately things like gymnema, talking to them about fiber and the healthy fats and having enough protein all really improve these messages and and the the problems that can be associated with elevated blood glucose level that seems to be quite consistent a lot of the, across a lot of the cancers that I'm seeing. Yeah. I think the other beautiful thing about 
you know, regulating someone's sugar is, is how much it impacts somebody's mood. You know, for example, you know, um, often the oncology journey is filled with anxiety-provoking situations. And so, you know, regulating someone's blood sugar actually helps to regulate their mood, regulate their sleep, and just regulate their ability to kind of cope with challenging situations for which they're we're, they're most likely going to face, you know, on a day-to-day, week-to-week sort of basis. So yeah. such, you know, fantastic kind of whole person care where you really, you know, you might be focusing on looking at sort of bodily health in, in lots of ways, but in fact, we're working on mental and emotional well-being as well. Definitely. And I think it brings up a good point too. Lots of people will come because of that stress and anxiety and maybe the trauma of the initial mm. diagnosis, having significantly changed their diet before I even see them. And especially if they've got yeah. a good level of health knowledge but surprisingly many of those changes that they make particularly if they pull out lots of fats or animal proteins mean that their blood sugar regulation is actually worse and so they're trying Mm. to make these really positive changes but it's leaving them feeling a bit unusual because they're just not having enough carbohydrates or complex carbohydrates perhaps to balance their blood sugar and they are getting a bit more uh, lightheaded in some of the hypoglycemic symptoms so trying to show them how to formulate a really balanced diet and still Mm. you know engage in the kind of things that they're trying to do with their dietary strategies, but just make sure it's not leaving them feeling, you know, deflated and and malnourished as well. Yeah, and I mean, I think that's where having a support person, you know, there with you because – what I find also about the cancer journey is that often the the family members are quite anxious as well, and so the person experiencing the cancer can sometimes feel like they can't burden their familial support people with additional kind of things that they're doing, and so having that kind of external support person where they can freely kind of discuss you know really what they want to do can be a really powerful kind of balancing effect for them, so they don't have to burden. Well, they're not burdening, but they feel like they often feel like they're burdening yeah, their family members. Them. With, yeah, um, yeah, yeah, that's right. But I wanted to add a couple more. Um, it's not you know official, but I think there's a, a couple of other aspects of well-being that are really important to consider, and that being like circadian dysregulation. I mean, I read an article yesterday actually about our teenagers having the worst sleep in the history of of humanity. So quite a large (laughs) um, headline in the conversation yesterday. But um, so, you know, circadian dysregulation is is actually associated with hormonal dysregulation and stress hormone dysregulation and all sorts of inflammatory issues as well. So, and I think it's a really fabulous thing to talk to people about the importance of deep sleep, the importance of the restoratory aspect of sleep, but particularly in supporting someone on their oncology journey. Yes. Tell us what how you how you approach that too. Yeah, so I really try and enga- um, engage them around the quality of their sleep. And I think it's one of those things that you have to dig a little bit of de- deeper with with patients. You know, I want to know about their dirty little secrets, like they are on their phone <laughs> late at night or yes. I don't know, that they're sleeping in really late and they're going to bed really late. You know, if you ask a patient how many hours they get and they'll just answer by rote eight hours, but they're not telling you that that's from 2 to 10 a.m., you know, 2 a.m. to 10 a.m. or something like that. You know, the research Mm. shows that that's not ideal. And so really trying to gently educate them in the right direction. If they're having trouble with sleep, give them some really good avenues to support their sleep. And talking to them about, you know, like you mentioned, all the things that are affected by their sleep, 
blood sugar regulation is another big one. And if they can make changes to that, it's a much easier and more pleasurable thing to change than perhaps having to give up their favourite foods or some of the other things that we might ask them to do during this whole thing. Mm. I generally say to them, if they're having really terrible sleep or they've got a terrible pattern, and we talk about doing like a sleep rehab or a sleep reset and really just focusing for seven to 10 days on all the things they need to do to get an earlier night and a better quality sleep, whether it be starting Mm. their wind down time at five o'clock and having their meal earlier and getting off tech and having a nice warm bath or having, you know, kind of a sleepy tea, um, just really establishing new patterns and trying to invest in getting to bed earlier and getting better quality sleep. Um, they feel like different people. They come having yeah. more ability to cope with stress and the, the situation and mm. quite often their family members start to do the same as well. So everyone's feeling a bit better for it. And I think it's a lovely expression of self-care as mm. well. Like it's just such a natural part of our lives and you know, I really harp on, <laughs> harp on about sleep hygiene and, and um, optimising sleep. And the other thing that I think is really important, we've mentioned it, you know, throughout this discussion already, is that how stressful the oncology journey often is and how anxiety provoking it is. But chronic stress is quite a severe issue. You know, the World Health Organisation, say 80% of all chronic disease has some aspect of, of chronic stress involved in the etiology of it. So, you know, that being chronic emotional stress, chronic mental stress, spiritual stress, you know, physical stress. I mean, the world is a very fast-paced culture and we revere stress, but stress is really important to address in the cancer journey. How do you go about supporting your patients in in that regard? Yeah, great question. I feel like they come to me quite often on one of their worst days or periods of their lives. And so we go Mm. gently. It's like an onion. We try and peel the layers. And so we'll ask the general questions about stress. But I think the more you spend time with the patient and the more the trust is there, sometimes the things and the layers start to come off and we can really get the basis of what's causing the stress and then be able to support that. And like you said, it can be multiple things. But if it's a financial stress or if it's a stress about a loved one or you know dealing with the emotions and and perhaps the trauma of and knowing that your life may not be as long as you expected it to be they're big issues and so I really try and support them with the nutritionals and herbals that I, I know may help but also really engage other uh, support people whether it be psychologists counselors mm. other services that might then be able to um, set them on a better path and we talk about it not overnight changes these are changes that we work on over a period of time particularly things like financial stress You know, it's obviously not going to change overnight, but how can they put into Mm. place some strategies to start to relieve some of the stress? Can they just, you know, organize to talk to someone about it who's a specialist in that area or or confide in someone and and who is their support system? I think social connection and the support system um, is a huge part of this as well. So how can they lean back on their people or have um, new people that they can work with on these stresses as we start to kind of unravel what's perhaps been years and years of, of ongoing stress. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, and, and that long-term kind of, I mean, often often when somebody has a, a significant diagnosis, it can be a fantastic opportunity to make some some really significant life changes. But obviously changing everything overnight is, a, is stressful in itself. So going slow is definitely a really lovely approach. So I wanted to to shift our conversation a little bit because I know, you know, through our pre-podcast conversations and stuff, we were talking a lot about the incredible new research 
in regards to the gut biome and cancer prevention and even the response to chemotherapy. And also having, I guess, the idea of the gut biome in mind when we deal with cancer in general, but also in particular specific gut cancers like bowel cancer or rectal cancer, for example. So tell us the latest research and how you try and incorporate this into your supportive methods. Yeah, excellent question. So uh, in 2021, a really great study was published that I, I encourage people to look at called Gut Microbiome and its Role in Colorectal Cancer. And that really opened up a whole level of understanding and, and concise and actionable knowledge around how we can adopt um, and utilise the microbiome uh, in a number of ways when we're thinking about those kind of gut-specific um, and bowel-specific cancers. So it's a number of different things. They're even looking at how can we assess the microbiome, a bit like they might do a fecal occult blood test to predetermine people that might be at risk of colorectal cancer because of the species uh, inhabiting their microbiome. So really, uh, when my patients come to me with a diagnosis, it's one of the things we must think about, you know, for all patients, but particularly for those gut-based oncology cases. And so I'll usually organise to do some form of assessment of their microbiome to discover if they do have any of those species, but also to find out a bit more about Mm. what's going on there with digestive enzymes, acids, detoxification profiles, those kind of things. And, you know, getting the microbiome sorted for people with any cancer diagnosis, as you mentioned, helps the absorption or effectiveness of the chemotherapy in new research. So it's a big area. And I think we're just learning the tip of the iceberg. And I think going forward, there'll probably be so much more to learn, but certainly something that's important to uh, keep our eye on and, and then discuss with our patients. Yeah, definitely. So you mentioned testing for the gut biome. I mean, there's a lot of different tests out there. Is there one that you particularly favour? It's a tricky question. I think it's like choosing your favourite yeah. children. I, I really do <laughs> still love um, the CDSA level two for its basic nature and its actionable information. But then I would also use things like a microba and some of the more advanced testing if I'm trying to get a bit of a bigger overview, uh, particularly if patients have already been through their treatment and we're now trying to um, provide a microbiome that's preventative or protective long term, and so really I choose different uh, tests given on the given the the stage that someone's at. Also financially, what they're able to do. You know, we talked about stress and financial mm. stress, and the last thing I want to do is cause more stress. So it's really about picking what's appropriate for each patient, and then using as much of that information to direct the care that we're giving them. Mm. And I guess also, I mean, dietary advice and utilizing pre or you know, even probiotics, that kind of thing. Like, do you ever sort of utilise that without doing testing? Do you find that that is of benefit for some people? A hundred percent. So, you know, just even talking to people about fibre and food and why our fibre is so important as a prebiotic and the kind of fibres that we can add. You know, I'm a big fan of hummus and it's one of those foods that you can really add to increase the fibre quite simply. Most people love it. It's easy to put into snacks or add on veggies in your adding fibre as a start of that prebiotic change. We can obviously use fermented foods and simple probiotics still have a big place. So um, not everyone Mm. would be using testing. Certainly if it wasn't a um, gut-based cancer, then there was probably more a more likelihood that I would be using just some general strategies because there's other things I might be testing or uh, other more important things to address. I think it's just another point to be mindful of too is that the probiotics are fantastic and we would consider them generally very safe. But if someone's using a chemotherapy that's having a really significant effect 
on um, their white cell count, particularly neutropenia, we have to be cautious because we can uh, actually Mm. cause a probiotic infection. So um, it's Mm. it's one we need to choose a little bit carefully, but very important. You can't go wrong with a food that will help as a prebiotic uh, action. Yeah, definitely. And I think that's empowering for the practitioner, but it's empowering for the patient as well. Like if there is financial issues or um, or treatment fatigue, that's the next question I want to kind of to, to talk to you about it because this is what I see in, in my practice is a sort of sense of treatment fatigue. You know, I, I think often what happens with people with a diagnosis of cancer is they, their life is going along uh, day by day, ordinary, and then bang, this, you know, this news comes. And as you mentioned, you know, earlier in the talk, this sense of trauma, but then there's this enormous change in your life where you're seeing multiple different practitioners, you know, sometimes daily, sometimes, you know, every week. And it's a, a huge change for people. And and what I see is a sort of sense of treatment fatigue, you know, and I know that you would consider this, you know, in your patients. So how do you support people, you know, with that? And I guess from a whole person lifestyle medicine, you know, it's ongoing ideally. And how long do you try and treat people for and and how do you how do you wrap it up for people? Like, what's your approach there? Yeah, so in the first consultation, I really try and highlight the fact that we do have so many options, but the skill is choosing the appropriate option at the appropriate time. And so mm. whether it be keeping supplements to the minimum or just making simple changes, not over overwhelming them, you know, giving someone a huge dietary uh, handout is something that we're sometimes encouraged to do. But I know just from my experience in clinical practice, I probably never adopt anything out of it if it's too overwhelming. So really just working, if we're working on diet one meal at a time, you know, how can we up-level the breakfast to be more appropriate? And next time we might more talk about how to make some simple changes to get more movement into their day. And so I try and really chunk it down and just give them the bits that are most important. And you have those patients that are really motivated and engaged and they want to know more and there's always more we can tell them, but I try and keep it on the simpler side. So then it's something that over time evolves to be a, a completely new looking life and perhaps something that's much healthier, not only for their oncology, but also for their general well-being. Family mm. usually makes those changes as well. And so some patients that I've been working with, you know, upwards of 15 years and looking at how we can improve things and it's ever changing, you know, particularly if someone's had an extensive period of, of treatment, like some of my metastatic patients who are on ongoing treatment, the type of things we have to do for their diet, or the strategies that we have to uh, continue to, to change and make so that they can continue on to be as healthy as possible while undergoing those long-term therapies um, mean that there's always, always something to learn. Brilliant. Is there any questions that I haven't asked you or is there something that you haven't said that you really feel is very important for all of our listeners to, to hear? Yeah, I think it's just really important to be mindful of the fact that patients do have so much they can do on this day when they get this terrible diagnosis and the weeks subsequent to that, that there's a lot of support available and also a lot of research for that support. That's why I got into working in this space and supporting patients undergoing cancer caries because I was just so inspired by the amount of information that was there to say, you know, using particular herbs and nutrients were were, um, helpful and effective. And, and, you know, I think getting the right advice, taking your 
time, not making rash changes, uh, and also really looking at how we can support the patient, but also the carer. Um, there's a lot of research one of my colleagues is doing up in Sydney mm. on how we can support the carer and ensuring that mm. they don't end up having worse uh, uh, health uh, in the long term, which is what um, the data kind of shows. And so I think it's just that there are lots of people like you and I and, and other clinicians working in this area um, who are here to help and, and give the right advice. So walking into some of those retailers we mentioned and grabbing something um, <laughs> might seem simple, but I feel like there's a lot of better quality and actionable and, and researched evidence um, ways to go about it that might, it's probably more cost effective in the long run and, and gets better outcomes. Yeah. And Carla, thank you so much for being with us today. I love your idea of the toolbox. I think that's such a beautiful thing because, you know, um, sometimes complementary medicine can be overwhelming in just how much benefit and how much support it can have. So knowing that we've got a toolbox and really supporting patients to understand that we've got choices within within lifestyle medicine and within complementary medicine and there's so much opportunity for patients to improve their health at such a vital time in their lives and the work that you're doing in this space is so important and just so appreciate your passion and uh, I know that you're hugely appreciated by your community. Thank you very much. Yes, I think it is an exciting time and um, it's such a pleasure to work in this space and um, yes, I'm, I'm very appreciative. So thank you everyone for listening today and don't forget that you can find all the show notes, transcripts and other resources that we discussed from today's episode on the FX Medicine website. I'm Dr. Michelle Woolhouse and thanks for joining us. We'll see you next time. This podcast is intended as healthcare practitioner education only and it is not a substitute for medical advice, diagnosis or treatment.